Good morning. So great to see all your lovely faces. Um, during first service, there was a, like an alarm went off, and we couldn't find it, and it was echoing through this whole room. And uh, we, we hardly got started during the first service, and there was this sense with a lot of us that, man, there's some spiritual warfare going on in here. That's a really odd occurrence, and it hasn't happened before. And um, so far, we haven't had any glitches in second service, which I'm really glad. Uh, but I wish you were here to hear that noise that happened earlier. We turned off the whole power. The, all the lights went off in this whole room. We turned off the speaker system, everything. Everything went blank. The noise was still happening to this moment. We have no idea what that noise was. It sounded like an alarm in this whole room. Uh, it was really weird. Having said that, I would love to pray uh, to begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your power, for your love, the closeness the compassion and grace and mercy that you have with us. And uh, we just come to you with, with needs, with open, empty hands, not able to do what you were able to do. So we pray for the, not just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is a promise, but the filling of the Holy Spirit in the sense of help us to walk with you. And uh, would you shine brightly through us? Would you help us to grow? Would you speak to us? Would you help me to share the truth in a way that honors you and uh, that edifies the church? We love you because you first loved us, and uh, we come to you this morning asking for help. In Jesus' name, amen. On September 13th, 1969, the first episode of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? debuted on CBS. Scooby-Doo, some people know it. Um, it began as a children's TV show, a children's TV series. That was 53 years ago. I was such a young lad. And uh, I'm just kidding. I wasn't born. Uh, that, and I know you guys knew that. Uh, well, I hope you guys knew that. My gray beard and hair does throw some people off. Um, but that, that episode debuted. It's been 53 years. It's been on, on the air for 50 years, five decades. It's uh, gone through 13 different series, 13 different series. It's had multiple movies. Uh, most were not very great, actually. Um, the most recent series have turned from children's cartoon to a, a cartoon for adults. So just beware if any of you saw that when you were a little kid and you think, oh, my kids can see this. Not a good idea. Uh, Part of the reason is those kids back in the 60s grew up, and they wanted Scooby-Doo to grow up with them and their values and morals. And so it really became a cartoon for adults. And just this year, just this summer, Scooby-Doo made headlines. It was all throughout social media. I saw an article on it. I read, uh, I read articles every week on what's happening in the world in light of a biblical worldview and different, different news outlets that share. And uh, Scooby-Doo made headlines because they came out with a Halloween special just this year in which Velma Dinkley, I think that's how you say it, Dinkley, the female resident brainiac was confirmed as gay. She's gay now. But this is the first year they did that. But did that really surprise anybody? I think the biggest surprise 
of Scooby-Doo finally coming out with a homosexual character, the biggest surprise is they didn't do it 10 years ago. How has this not already happened? You, you name a recent Disney TV series, show, movie that does not promote in a positive way, in an affirming way, homosexuality. Can you? I can't. So this shouldn't really surprise us. Our culture has changed, has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. You guys know this. Um, in regard to gender and sexual orientation, the argument is no longer in the field of entertainment. It's moved on to every other facet of life. I mean, if you think about retail stores and our, our marketplace of the day, where we go to shop and buy things, Target has been offering exclusive gay pride merchandise for over a decade. And every June, they offer it in a big way. Uh, and they're not the only ones. Almost every major retail store does this. Nearly every major shoe and clothing line supports Pride Month. I had a harder time finding a name brand, a store, uh, or a store, a retailer, that didn't promote homosexuality. And not just promote it. I mean, like, genuinely affirm this is the way our culture needs to go. Uh, kind bars. If you've ever had a Kind bar, I love Kind bars. They're great little snacks. It's all natural. It's like almonds and dark chocolate with the sea salt, if you like that kind. Anyway... They came out with a Pride Month candy bar where the rapper says, Kind Pride. And they're promoting Pride Month. Fossil watches, uh, not old watches for some of you that don't know what that is, but like a name brand, Fossil, that makes watches, uh, came out with a special Gay Pride Month watch that's uh, one of their top sellers. Insurance companies, now their commercials promote homosexuality and, and the, the LGBTQ agenda. Manufacturers, private retailers, uh, it's harder to find any, any form of retail and merchandise and economy that doesn't support LGBTQ. Now, that's nothing to say about sports. Tell me a sports team that doesn't have something on their helmet or their team or their field or their stadium that doesn't promote homosexuality. Schools, uh, public schools, universities, hospitals, and every other government-funded institution that I could find online in some way supported and affirmed and promoted uh, the LGBTQ movement. It's even uh, in our government, in the judicial and legislative branches of our government, if you know anything about government in the United States, there is a strong, very effective movement of affirming and promoting, not just accepting like, hey, we need to treat these people fairly. The, it has moved on from there. Now, now the environment is hostile. Um, in the past 10 years, the movement for LGBTQ has become so hostile that most people who disagree with the ideology, let's take me for instance, I don't think that was God's design for us to be that way. Even saying that, there's a lot of people that feel like me that will not publicly say that. They will not, not just from a stage, I mean, if you're in Walmart, if you're at a restaurant, to their neighbors, they will not even talk about the issue because uh, they have a fear of being fired from their job. 
They have a fear of being imprisoned, like in Canada. There's a man that was in prison for not affirming his daughter's gender identity. Now, that's still out for trial, and he did get out on bail. That's one of the leading uh, news article events for that. Uh, persecuted. You can be persecuted for saying that you don't affirm LGBTQ. Or the worst, and this is where the church has the biggest, uh, I think, is affected the most. People don't want to talk about this or speak out against it or have conversations because if you in any way say you don't affirm, you will be excluded, rejected, ostracized from people you love. Your neighbors, your kids, your grandkids, your sister, your brother, your aunt, your uncle. People are afraid to talk about this, not because they're just scaredy cats. It's because of love, partly. You love your neighbor. You love your family member. You, you don't want to lose your grandchild just because they're affirming of LGBTQ. Many voices in our culture have made it clear that if you aren't affirming of a non-biblical view of gender and sexual orientation, you are not only a dinosaur who is on the wrong side of history, you are hateful. Your speech is called hate speech. They're trying to make it a, a, a law that you can't even say it. You could go to prison, serve jail time. It's hateful and you deserve, if you don't agree with the LGBTQ, LGBTQ movement, you deserve to be silenced, canceled, and oppressed. That is the cultural movement of today. So what are we supposed to do? What is the church supposed to do? Now, there's different ways that we can approach this. We can say, well, I don't agree. Let's stick to traditions and let's figure out how to guard and protect our kids and our grandkids and our friends from going down this route. And that's good. In some ways, we need to do that. But that can't be our only approach. We're finding that kids that grew up in Christian homes, a lot of them, part of the reason why they're walking away from the faith is because their parents wouldn't talk about it, and they felt like their parents hated gay people, and they felt like something's wrong with that. And so without having an explanation, they walk away. Or they grow up in churches where uh, there's a pastor in Lawrence, Kansas, who I've tried to get in touch with, he is affirming of LGBTQ, and he's a pastor of a church out there, and it just drives me, it just drives me nuts. I hate it when, when other churches affirm this kind of thing, which churches in our own town do. Many churches in our town affirm LGBTQ. I don't know if you knew that. I say churches to be respectful. Now, of course, if you were to ask me my theological understanding of what a church actually is, maybe I wouldn't call it a church, but they call themselves a church. The community views them as a church, and they affirm LGBTQ. What do we do? Do we just go with the flow? Do we give up the fight? Do we move on? I mean, the next conversation is gender identity, and it's killing girls by the dozens every year, and it's increasing. Girls are ending their lives because they were told a lie that if they just change their gender identity, they'll feel better about their body image, which is not going to happen. 
Uh, they'll feel better about who they are, which only makes them more suicidal. And within seven to 10 years, nearly all of them say they're suicidal and depressed after transitioning, after changing their gender identity, after trying to present themselves as something different. They realize it doesn't work. And the media and the mainstream is trying to silence the voice of the detransitioners, those who said they were, but now they're not. What do we do? Do we lay down and be silent? Do we not preach the truth? Are we, are we going to be hateful? Are we going to talk bad about people that are gay? Are we going to talk bad about people that are struggling? Are we going to look down at them? Are we going to be, no, it needs to be this way or no way? Are, are we going to huddle up and bubble up and just be our own people and say, forget the world? Are we going to lose the mission? Are we going to lose the heart? Are we going to lose the compassion? What are we going to do? I'm so glad that you asked that question. It's a good question. It really is. And God has so much to say about it. It's not all complicated. I've read a lot of books recently. Some of them are very complicated. But the Bible's not. I've been reassured again and just a sense of peace and encouragement. When I look at the scriptures again, having heard all these crazy ideologies, I'm overwhelmed again of how clear and consistent God's word is. So what are you supposed to do? Number one, we need to look to God's word. We have to look to God's word. God is the one who gives us the truth, who sets us free, who tells us the way we were designed. He is the creator. He is the potter. We are the clay. We, are, we do not own our bodies. We do not own our souls. We do not know all things. We are not the master of our universe we, we have to humble ourselves and say we need to look to God. In Psalm 19, David teaches us to look to God's word. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise, and man, we need wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, Enduring forever, the ordinances, that's like the laws, his policies, his procedures, his direction. His ordinances, the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. We're warned. We're, we're told, even before we step into trouble, we're told this could be trouble. We're warned by them. And them and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. There is a reward for those who look to God's word and say, God, what do you say about the whole LGBTQ movement? What do you say about homosexuality? What do you say about same-sex attraction, sexual orientation, gender identity, which we can't get into gender identity in the next couple weeks, mainly because it's a huge, huge issue that really centers around biblical manhood and womanhood, and that's going to take a whole nother series. But we need it. There's an abundant reward for those who keep them. Verse 12, who perceives his unintentional sins? In other words, would you humble yourself and be honest with yourself and say, who knows what they don't know? I mean, who knows if they sin unintentionally? If you're not doing it on purpose, how can you know if you're making the wrong decision? How can you know if you have it wrong on 
LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning. They're trying to change that right now. You know, you young people, I feel so bad for you uh, because your entire social media uh, peers, your influence, the scene in which you live in on a regular basis, if you're not an ally, if you're not affirming it, you're going to be rejected. If, if you're not willing to care for people in the way that they want you to, you're, you're going to find persecution and hardship. So who perceives as unintentional sins? In other words, we need God's word. We need his perfect, righteous, reliable. We need his word. Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Don't let me be wrong about this. Moreover, moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Don't let me sin after I find out the truth. Let's say we find out as a church body that homosexuality is not God's design. It is a sin, and it's only going to lead to death. And then we find that out, and then we go out in the marketplace and find out that if we don't agree with them and affirm them, we're going to be ostracized. Let me not go on sinning willfully. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Verse 14 is a prayer. I want to look at God's good word and I pray that every word I say in the meditation of my heart honors him. So we need to look at God's word so that we don't unintentionally or willfully sin. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Jesus, what are your commandments on sexuality, on sexual immorality, on homosexuality? Number two, we need to love our neighbor. The other side of the coin that the church needs to get right is we have to love our neighbor. These are real people to be loved. People that deal with same-sex attraction and gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria, whatever they want to call it, I'm not right in the, in the body that I was born with. Those are real human beings that are lonely, confused, frustrated, needing hope and peace. And until it becomes your son or daughter likely some of you are going to be like, oh, they're just wrong. It's just a choice, or they were just abused, or whatever. Don't dismiss. These are people. These are people that Jesus died for. They're not just ugly, disgusting perverts and all the other derogatory terms that people wrongfully throw at their neighbor, who they ought to love like themselves, who ought to treat them like they wanted to be treat treated. These are real people that think, if it's true that God says no to this, am I going to be lonely for the rest of my life? Am I going to be unsatisfied? Am I going to be ostracized? Can I even find a place in church? These are real people that we need to love genuinely, care about, listen to. People that are struggling with this are not our enemy. They're either our brother and sister or our neighbor. And Jesus was emphatically clear about how you treat all three of those, two of those. These are people to be loved. In Matthew 22, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, this is the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He wasn't talking about Jews. And, and the parable of the Good Samaritan was the key deciding factor on that. Because a very pious religious Jewish person came to Jesus and says, well, who's my neighbor? 
You're talking about my fellow Jew, right? You're talking about someone who agrees like me, who thinks like me, who, who's in the same religious thinking as me. Someone who agrees with me religiously, right? He says, no. He gives the parable of the Samaritan. Your neighbor is every human being that you are around. Every human being, whether they're gay, straight, bisexual, hateful, whatever. They are your neighbor, and God commands, love your neighbor as yourself. So we need to love our neighbor. We also need to encourage one another. As Hebrews 10, 24 says, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together. We have to continue gathering together. We have to understand this. As some are in the habit of doing, some people stopped meeting together. It was hard for them, I'm sure. But encouraging each other, edifying one another, building each other up, rebuking, teaching, correcting. We need to keep gathering and encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, we need each other now more than ever. Christians are becoming the minority. We need true community with one another to encourage one another, to have grace and mercy with one another, to to understand, hey, I don't know how to do this, and my kid feels this way, or my work is that way, and I don't know how to say what I, I can't say what I believe, and the society is just totally against me. I don't know what to do. We need to, we need to share stories with our lives with one another so that we can know we're not alone. It's not just you that's struggling with this. There are, there are Christians that are struggling with same-sex attraction, possibly in this room. And God has answers for you, and God loves you, and you need Jesus. And, and we need to be a church family that truly encourages one another. And that's what we're going to do today. In the last half of this sermon, we're going to look at God's Word to understand what He has said about gender and sexuality, particularly with sexual orientation, about who you like, about who you're attracted to. But with that, we're also going to keep in mind, how do we love our neighbor and how do we encourage? How do you love the sinner and encourage the saint? Or how do you love your neighbor, someone who doesn't agree with you, someone that's not believing the way you do? And also, how do you edify Christian sisters and brothers who have different views on this? How, how do we do this? So that's what we're going to look at. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Last week, we looked at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's the first two chapters of the whole Bible. It kind of sets the foundation of how God made male and female. That's repeated multiple times. And we saw that God's design for your biological sex, for making you male or female, God's design in that was to reflect His image. It says it multiple times in 127 and 28. It says it, uh, uh, it, says it in chapter 2. God made us male and female to reflect His image. He also made us male and female to reproduce, not just babies, but disciples. It, we, we were designed this way. Gender was designed this way for that. And he made us male and female for relationship and intimacy. There's a unique way in which men and women are together. It's a mystery. It's a mystery in the book of Proverbs, and it's a mystery in Ephesians chapter 5. God's pretty generous with us in saying, hey, I know this is hard to understand, but male and female was made for intimacy and relationship and marriage. But marriage isn't only about the relationship between a man and a woman. But before you freak out on me and what I just said, it's not just about a relationship between a male and a female. It's also a picture and illustration of God's relationship with us. 
God designed gender and marriage to be a living picture of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul writes about this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Right? That's not culturally debated at all. We're all on the same page here. Not a big deal. Submission's great. Yeah, we don't struggle with that. So wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why? He even tells us why. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Not the husband, but Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the church. He's our Savior. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Us husbands and wives, when we love each other, we are a living picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus loved us, died for us, rose again. That's all a living picture. And then he, he just so we don't confuse this with some cultural norm, Paul intentionally goes back to Genesis chapter 2. He says in verse 31, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He goes back to Genesis 2, verse 24. This mystery is profound. Amen. It is. But I am talking about Christ and the church. So Paul tells us that part of the design for being male and female in a marriage, an intimate relationship where we are sexually connected with one another is a living picture and illustration of the good news of Jesus, that Jesus loves us and we are committed to him. Now, here's the clencher. Why would Paul exclude a homosexual relationship from this beautiful picture? Why did Paul not say, and like a husband loves a husband, this is how the good news is presented, or as a wife loves a wife, which I lived in a house with two wives, before? Why isn't that a picture of Jesus's love for us and our commitment to him? How come? Why, Paul? Why wouldn't you use that? If, if that was cool in the New Testament, or if that really wasn't forbidden in the Old Testament, why does every instance in the whole Bible, bar none, no exclusion, say that marriage and intimacy and sexuality is only between a male and a female? Why do that? Well, there's an easy, simple answer for why Paul didn't say a husband and a husband or a wife and a wife. It's because the Old Testament, which was their Bible of the day, forbid it. Homosexuality was strictly, explicitly, historically documented as forbidden in the Old Testament in Judaism, period. No one actually really debates that. Now, they say they got it wrong, but it is historically documented that homosexuality was forbidden and not part of God's design. Now, we know this because we actually still have the Old Testament, and I can show you where those laws are in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. I'll turn there. You can turn there. It'll be on the screen. Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It, in, the, in the Hebrew, in case you're really deep into this knowledge, I know, like, as a woman's bed, Uh, The idea is being sexually knowing a male, so being sexual, a male with a male. It is an abomination. Chapter 20, verse 13, it's repeated, which is very interesting. Why Moses does not repeat all the laws in Leviticus. Now, he does repeat a lot of them in Deuteronomy, I know. But in Leviticus, they're not all repeated all the time. 
but he repeats this one. In verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them, and by the way, if you're, if you're ever hearing the arguments against, that affirms homosexuality, this is so key. No one can explain this away. The, the term both of them you should highlight in your Bible. Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. You can read these laws, and it's, no one's confused why for thousands of years, Jews and Christians have all agreed that homosexual behavior is against God's law. Everyone has agreed with that for thousands of years, except starting in the 1960s. I don't know what it is about the 60s in every century. The 60s are the worst, aren't they? Like when you think of centuries, you go to the... If, if the decades were people at a party, the 60s would be the one in the corner like, no one wants to talk to them. They ruined everything. Everything's bad after the 60s. The 1860s, if you know anything about history in America. The 1960s, anything about history in America, the sexual revolution. Anyway, that's not important. So the 60s are the worst. Anyway, um, it has always been true in Judaism and Christianity that homosexuality is against God's law, always because of these. However, in recent years, there have been some who say, we need a reformation. Just like the 1500s, we need a reformation. We need to change our view. The church has been wrong for 2,000 years. Judaism got it wrong. Everybody got it wrong. They're all wrong except for us. Homosexuality shouldn't be viewed this way, and they have to deal with these two laws in Leviticus 18 and chapter 20. And so the ones who say we need to change our understanding of these laws take two approaches. And you need to know this, and I, I want to teach this to you because it's so important if you're going to be a part of the conversation and part of helping uh, make disciples understanding this. Number one, their approach is, well, it's not talking about all homosexual behavior, just some. That is a big argument. That's one of their, their top arguments. This is talking about homosexual behavior, but not all sexual homosexual behavior. The second approach is that, well, this is in Leviticus, and those laws no longer apply today. That's the second approach. So we're going to look at the first approach and the different arguments in the first approach because I don't want you guys to get tripped up with some of the arguments that try to affirm this because this church is not going to stop battling this conversation. We're, if we live in America, which we do, this is not going to just blow over overnight. It's not going to go away. This is the way our culture is going. We need to know why we say the Bible's clear that homosexuality is not part of God's design and is a sin. So... Uh, it's not talking about all homosexual behavior is the first approach. And one of the arguments under the first, first approach is these laws are only speaking about forced relationship or gay rape. That's what Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 is really talking about. They use Sodom and Gomorrah in, in Genesis 19, which we're not going to get into today. They use that as an example. This is just talking about a passive and active abuser and abused relationship. Now, that's a bad theory primarily because you can't find that anywhere in the text. You have to make that up. You have to say it's not written, it's not understood, it's not explained, but that is what they're thinking. So that's a bad theory to start off with. The second reason why that theory is no good and why people have not agreed with that for thousands of years is because Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13 makes it clear, both of them have committed an abomination. Now, understand what that means. If a man lies with a male is with a woman, some of those words are used in 1 Corinthians 6, which we're going to get to another time. The idea is, well, one is passive and one is active. 
The active is the abuser. If that's true, why have both of them committed an abomination? Because nowhere in the Bible does God say that the abused victim is guilty. Nowhere. There's no other instance where God says, you were abused, you were taken over, well, the blood's on your hand. Never is that said in the Bible, and nobody agrees with that, that takes the Bible faithfully. Abused people are not guilty for being abused, period. Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. It's plural every time. The act, if there even is active and passive mentioned in this or intended in this, they're both guilty, which means they're both committing an act that is sinful. They're both guilty of that sin. So you can't say that this is just forced relationship because that doesn't make sense with chapter 20. By the way, I've read a lot of arguments uh, that affirm LGBTQ. None of them give a plausible argument for Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. So that's a good one to, to note. You should highlight both of them. Um, that's important. Another argument uh, centers around the word abomination in those two verses. The word abomination is used 117 times in the Old Testament, and it is often, but this is important, not always, not always, it is often but not always used to describe idolatry and the worship in pagan, of pagan gods. So one of the arguments that say this is not speaking of all homosexual behavior one of the arguments is, well, this is just talking about cultic prostitution associated with pagan temples. There were pagan temples of the day, the Israelites were coming in, kicking out the Canaanites, and they had temples in which cultic prostitution, which is mentioned in the New Testament, and we'll have to get to that next week. Um, this is just talking about certain behavior that's dealt with with pagan idolatry. Because of the word abomination, that's the argument. Because it uses the word abomination, we know and we can interpret that that's what it means. However, there's two major problems with that theory. And the reason why for thousands of years no one has taken that theory is because the word abomination is not exclusively used in the context of temple idolatry. It's a trick. I've read the articles, I've read the blogs, I've read the book. You can read James Brownson's book on Bible, gender, and sexuality. He's a gay-affirming professor out in Michigan. It's super academic and dry. It's horrible. But he argues for this, and he cannot explain this word abomination. All he does is say, hey, this is talking about temple prostitution. Therefore, but you can't just take their word for it. Is it always talking about that or not? And it's not. I'll give you some examples so that you could be understanding of why that's not true. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4, Moses, who's the same author as Leviticus, wrote that a man who divorces his wife and then sleeps with her again commits an abomination. He's an abomination. It uses that Hebrew word abomination that's used 117 times in the Old Testament. When he uses it, what he's saying is a man shouldn't abuse his wife. He shouldn't uh, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away and then be with her again intimately. That is abuse. That's using women as property. That's horrible. That's against God's law. I know there's other arguments about women used as property in the Old Testament that we can't get into, but if you look at God's law, he is always more and more saying, take care of your family. Don't abuse women. Don't abuse children. But that's a different argument. So the bottom line is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4, the word abomination is used, and it has nothing to do with pagan worship, temple idolatry, nothing. It just says, hey, men, if you send your wife away, don't abuse them and take advantage of them. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 25, which we'll actually read, the word is used again in uh, 25, 13 through 16. This says that acting dishonestly in business transactions is an abomination. So verse 13, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. This is like uh, saying, oh, I'll sell you these beans, you know, a dollar for, for a pound, but the weight you use is less than a pound so or more. I can't even, yeah, it's more than a pound. And so you make someone pay you more than what you actually give them. It's just dishonesty in business transactions. That's all this is. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small, a full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So why am I bringing this up? It's to make the biblical argument that dishonesty in business is morally wrong regardless of where it's taking place, and it doesn't even include temple worship or pagan idolatry here. So you can't take the word abomination in Leviticus chapter 18 and 20 and connect it only to pagan temple worship. This is super important when you get to Romans chapter 1. The slick talkers and the wolves and the false teachers are going to try to use this argument as a foundation for Romans chapter 1. So it's important to know this. You can, you can say, no, you're wrong, you're lying. That word is not only used for pagan worship. It's also used in the book of Proverbs, by the way, and says that thievery, um, being dishonest, being proud, is an abomination to God. Which should just give us a clue. The Bible is not fixated on homosexuality. It's not the only sin that's an abomination. There are other sins that are abomination. Sins that you have likely committed that are abominations. So it speaks to it. Homosexuality is a sin. It's not the only sin. It's not the worst sin. And, and we need to be balanced in the way that we understand it if we're going to love our neighbor and we're going to win people to Christ. We do need to understand what it says and we need to understand what it doesn't say. And uh, part of that's important. So the argument that abomination means it's pagan worship is a faulty argument because there's examples where that's not true, which means you can't say that that's what it's being used for. A second major problem with saying that these laws only refer to pagan worship, temple prostitution, is that when you read Leviticus chapters 18 and 20, if you read the chapter, you find out that Moses is giving laws against multiple forms of sexual immorality. And I'll tell you why that's important in a minute, but let's just look at it. In Leviticus 18 you have a prohibition against incest in Leviticus 18.6 and following. It's really verses 6 through 18, but I don't want to read all those. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. In other words, incest is wrong according to God's law. Adultery in Leviticus 18.20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Adultery is against God's law. Chapter 18, verse 23, and you shall not lie with any animal so as to make yourself unclean, or a woman to give herself to that. That is called bestiality, and that is against God's law and design. Now, here's what you need to remember. Nearly everybody agrees that incest, adultery, and bestiality is currently still against God's law and design for sexuality, even the LGBTQ, some of them. And this is how they are faulty in their understanding. So if Leviticus 18, just keep those up there for a minute, if Leviticus 18 
says that incest, adultery, and bestiality are abominations to God, which I'll show you in a minute, how these are all abominations, then you can't say that just the ones about homosexuality are different. So let me show you. So all these are wrong. They're against God's law still to this day. Then in verse 24, which is the very next verse after that last verse on the screen, after verse 18 that talks about bestiality, Moses continues, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. That's important. I wish I could show you the Hebrew. These are all connected. Any of these things that I've mentioned in Leviticus chapter 18 are, are pro, prohibited in God's law. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. The next verse, verse 26, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. Now, wait a minute, Moses. Are all of these things abominations? Well, yes, if Moses includes them all and repeats himself, which he uses the word abomination four times in these verses. You shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. By the way, when I say Moses, God is the one giving this law. This is God's word through Moses to the people. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. It's for Jew and non-Jew. Uh, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs or abominations that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So here's why it's important for us to understand Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 calls all of these things that Moses mentions in Leviticus 18 as abominations, which include incest, bestiality, and adultery. Why is that important? Because if you make the argument that that Old Testament law in Leviticus 18, that homosexuality is an abomination, if you say, well, that's only referring to pagan worship, which is one of the fundamental arguments of the pro-LGBTQ movement that are Christians. If you say that, then you also have to say and affirm that incest, adultery, and bestiality is okay as long as it's not with pagan worship. Does that make sense? They're saying not all homosexual behavior is wrong. It's only the kind that's in the temple. Well, if that's true, then not all of incest is wrong. It's only the kind that's in the temple. Not all bestiality is wrong. It's only the kind that's in the temple. Not all adultery is wrong. It's only adultery inside the temple. Now, does that make sense? No. It's a faulty argument. When God says this is an abomination, he's not only talking about temple worship, pagan idolatry and worship. He's saying that this is wrong and not part of his design. Now, there is a third argument. It's the other approach. They say, yeah, Leviticus does forbid homosexual practice. However, Leviticus also forbids eating seafood, Leviticus chapter 11. You know, um, does anybody like, uh, what's that place, Red, Red Lobster? 
Yeah, Red Lobster, they should have Leviticus 11 on their sign. Yeah, is, does anybody believe that you shouldn't eat seafood? What about getting tattoos according to Leviticus 19.28? Or wearing clothing made with mixed fabrics according to Leviticus 19 verse 19? Listen, we don't follow those laws. Jesus fulfilled the law. We're not under the law anymore, so we don't have to follow. Fine, fine, I'll give it to you. Leviticus 18 and 20 do say that homosexual behavior is wrong in all instances, but we're no longer under that law. There are some people who say that. So what does the church say? We're out of time. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. No, we really are out of time. Um, there is an answer to that, and we'll get to that next week. And uh, yeah, I know. Isn't that sad? <laughs> no. uh, yeah. I will say this. Uh, there is one last verse. If you guys have like 60 seconds, can you do the next verse on the screen? It's 1 Corinthians 5. Let's end on a note to, rem to remember that we need to love our neighbor. And people that do affirm LGBTQ, how do we treat them? Well, if they're not Christians, let me repeat the words of Paul. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. God doesn't say we need to avoid, hate, ostracize, stay away from homosexuals. But in that same passage, he does talk about how we need to treat those that claim to be Christians. And we need to address that next week or the following week or the following week. One of those weeks, we're going to address that. Do you use their pronouns? Uh does the New Testament do away with the law? Is homosexuality okay? We need to talk about that, and we will in the following weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is true and trustworthy, and uh, it's like honey. It's like water to a parched soul. It's life-giving. We need it. We need your instruction. We need your instruction to not be unintentionally wrong, to understand things wrongly. And so I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church family that I'm blessed with, that we can study your word together. I thank you for the unbelievable opportunity that most men in my situation have not had in history, that I get to spend the best hours of my days and nights studying your word so that we can eat, so that we can feed the sheep, so that we can know. Thank you so much for the abundant riches that you've given us they are all a gift from you and even if they end tomorrow we know that you're good and that one day you're going to set all things straight you're going to set all things right and you're going to do away with pain and death and suffering and we look forward to that day thank you for your love and grace and mercy to sinners if you didn't love sinners i'd be lost forever would you help me to be like that? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.